Well, welcome to another episode of the Presbyterian and Reformed Churchman. I have two guests with me. Both have been on PNR Churchman before, and we are talking shepherding shepherds. And so let me introduce my guests first, and we'll we'll discuss what we're going to do. But uh, first, I'll introduce Rich Lino. Rich, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. Yeah, would you remind our, our listeners like what church you're at, what state it is, that kind of stuff? Yeah, Hope of Christ Church in Stafford, Virginia. Okay, great. Oh, wait a minute. You're... You're, um, are you hosting GA next year? Uh, yeah. Um, the, uh, James River Presbytery of which I'm a part is hosting GA. Okay, great. Great. I've had Matt Fender on recently. And yeah, so I know a lot of you that. guys. Yeah, Matt's a good uh, friend. Yeah, so powerhouse REs over there in, in that <laughs> presbytery. Uh, and then Brad Isbell and Brad needs no introduction, but Brad, usually you're on the other end of this where you're asking the questions. And so uh, just remind us where you're from. What's the name of your church? Well, I got to warn you. I usually take I usually start asking the questions no matter whether I'm a guest. I or know. Whether I'm running Presbycast, but I'm going to I'll try to restrain myself. Uh, I'm at uh, Covenant Presbyterian Church PCA in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. We're in the Tennessee Valley Presbytery. It's a oh, fantastic church. I don't know of a better one. Uh, you know, a 40-year history of solid uh, ministers involved ruling elders and um, uh, I couldn't be couldn't be more blessed in that respect praise God well and a really cool re- pulpit too it, yeah we do have a, we do have one of the we largest have an awesome pulpit yeah we have one of the largest pulpits in the PCA it's uh, elevated four feet seven feet wide um, probably weighs I don't know about a ton uh, of oak <laughs> and uh, there's a story behind it but we'll that'll be for a future show. Wow. Well, we, we might have to do that. So you're saying it's bigger than the one that um, down in Charlotte where we were at GRN this uh, this well, spring? Prob- we- probably not wider, but in, in a way, it's you know it's pretty visually impressive. Wow. Okay. Well, very good. Well, the reason I've, I've asked these gentlemen on uh, for this discussion actually was because Brad, I know, uh, has been instrumental in in helping uh, lure pastors to his church and shepherd pastors. And Rich is a ruling elder who uh, he preaches, he teaches, he knows a little bit probably what it's no, like to be exhorts. a teacher. He exhorts. Decently okay, in I'm order here, George. Preach. I'm licensed to preach. Oh, so I oh preach. okay. Okay. I stand yeah. corrected. You you were trying to correct me right off the yeah. jump, Brad. I see that. So thank you, Rich, for defending my honor and yours. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but th- this is a topic I've wanted to talk about. This is a, a podcast. I, I, I bill it as a podcast uh with ruling elders for ruling elders, and uh, the idea of shepherding shepherds—how ruling elders can shepherd their their teaching elders and and help them um, protect them in some areas, maybe guide them, help them to see blind spots—and it's it's a tough spot to be in. And there was an article that came out a week or so ago. I got it was entitled uh, "Departure: Why I Left the Church," and it's this. Uh, PCUS PCUSA pastor Alexander Lang, who goes through, uh, well, it says here it's a 12 minute read. So a 12 minute read of of all the reasons he's left his congregation, and uh, I think in his own words he said, you know, he he didn't expect it to get much traction. It was more just for his own readers, maybe a hundred or a couple hundred readers, but it kind of blew up the internet in in the Christian world, even in our own circles. We've seen on. Uh, PCA, RE, and TE forums, 
all kinds of reflections on this article, this pastor's reflections on some of the frustrations of ministry. And so I thought this article would serve as a good backdrop for for the congregation, uh, for the conversation. And so, uh, by the way, Brad, you said you like to ask questions. So what I'm hoping is you and Rich will be dialoguing such that I, I can almost stay out of it. But uh, this article, Departure, Why I Left the Church, and then he... Uh, wrote a, uh, I guess he was interviewed on a site called Religion News, meet the pastor behind that quitting the church essay. And so, uh, Rich, what are some of your impressions on this article? I know you've read it. You also heard his farewell sermon. So what were some initial thoughts that jumped out at you on this? I think it's a mixture of sort of, uh, I guess, sadness with um, frustration and um kind of a little bit of eye rolling at times. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I was reflecting upon, you know, I was actually meeting with somebody today who's, who uh, was the son of Iranian immigrants, um, grew, grew up in DC and he was talking about just kind of like the way he feels like a lot of people that he tries to hire today aren't really as, as dedicated as he is. And we were just discussing, I guess, the way that you deal with adversity, um, I can't remember where I was watching it um, or where, where I was reading it, but it was kind of in a biblical counseling thing. And, you know, adversity hits, you know, kind of like sun on, sun on, you know, like beating sun on something. And what determines the reaction isn't necessarily fixed based on what the adversity is. I think there's a, there's sort of a, um, the thing that, the thing that struck me was, um, I think, the way he articulated what he thought the gospel was yeah. um, in terms of being about being vulnerable and kind of the idea of the unconditional love of God, um, not a sense of, well, he, he denies the resurrection, he seems to have deny, deny, denies the resurrection and other key tenets of the Christian faith. And so, um, you know, the question is, are we dealing with ministry difficulties in the context of how somebody would delve into the resources that one has if they're united to Christ and the Holy Spirit strengthening them to that? And then, you know, other polity matters, obviously, that go into that. Or are we dealing with somebody who's, who's kind of, you know, as it were, using the resources of his mind and his flesh and that sort of thing? And you know that's 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 the thing that struck me was was that it's not it's not like an apples to apples comparison you know it it might as well be be written by why, why don't we why don't we hear a testimony of how hard it was for a Mormon pastor who quit the ministry or or an iman or something like that and the yeah. stresses associated with leadership in general and I could go over stresses that I that occurred in combat and things like that but are they relevant to the pastoral ministry per se. So that's kind of what struck me. Yeah, I'm going to bring Brad in in a second, but just uh, on that topic, I, I think that that is important. I mean, this is a PCUSA pastor, and uh, we we don't want to judge him, but he he has put himself out there, and I think there is that is a very important aspect, and I think we'll probably get into that. Like, there's, I mean, ministry is a calling; it's not it's not a career, and you know, what is his understanding of the gospel? And that does affect then how he views all these, these other stresses. But I think what, why the, the article 
has gained traction even in conservative evangelical circles is because, or, or makes it interesting because there's a lot of supposedly confessional conservative pastors that are resonating with, with this piece. I was shocked to see in our own forums that, and yeah. you know, my, my thing is, as I was reading it, I was like, oh yeah, I, I, I have a lot of these frustrations, but I have a different grid to process it through. Um, Brad, I want to bring you in on it. What was your impressions on, on what he wrote and the, well, the reaction it, to it? I guess the best, you know, best advice we can have for uh, the, the first key for pastoral success is be a Christian. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying this man's not a Christian, um, but, but the PCUSA is barely a Christian church. There yes. are Christians in the PCUSA, but they don't always um, affirm Christian doctrines, es essential Christian doctrines. And the irony is, you know, you had me on to talk about Christianity and liberalism by Machen, and he was fighting real, um, you know, gilt-edge, solid gold, uh, uh, certified Christian liberalism, which was denying the things that this man has come to deny. But the PCUSA itself backed away from that hardcore liberalism in, you know, in the, the later 30s and the 40s, and became more Bardian, mm -hmm. which was nearer to Orthodox than you know the than Fosdick and uh, some of the people that uh, uh, Henry Sloan Coffin and people that Machen was opposing in the the twenties and the, in the thirties. Sounds like to me this guy's gone from being um, you know wishy washy, uh, not terribly confident Bardian, which is what most PCUSA ministers. Um, were up until recently. Now I don't know what they are. I mean, their religion is um, intersectionality and trans, you know, trans acceptance and things like that. Uh, eco, uh, almost uh, you know, pop pantheistic um, eco worship. Um, but it sounds like he he went from you know probably a Bardian. That's probably what he learned at Princeton or whatever seminary he went to to being a, a true uh, theological liberal who denies essential tenets like uh, the resurrection, uh, the divinity of Christ, uh, I'm sure the substitutionary atonement. So, you know, my question for you, George, if you didn't believe the Bible was true and that Christ didn't rise from the dead and that he wasn't a unique, you know, the unique God-man, the only fitting substitute for you and for your people, I mean, why would you even bother to show up? I mean, it's sort of a heroic effort to try to do something called Christian ministry when you don't believe in Christian doctrine. So at one level, I'm glad he's quitting, you know. Uh, I, I don't I don't necessarily want his church to fail, but I sort of do uh, because they need to go to a real church and hear a real gospel. Yes, I was wondering, yes. Brad, on that, you know, you brought that up. It's funny because I was working out and I was thinking— Maybe it was yesterday or today, and I was thinking, I wonder if Brad's going to connect this to Machen. And you did. You didn't disappoint. We don't have a bullhorn here. but I uh, know, No horn. Oh, there we go. Oh! The first <laughs> time on PNR Churchman. Awesome. But, you know, it. I was wondering, I, it, it, it strikes me as it could be a form of that because it's not necessarily the actual history, but the, the event. And um, it's possible he really is, but he just... He just leaves all that historical stuff to the realm of, you know, things that we can't know. But, you know, I think your point 
is well taken that he could just be moving through that. But um, I, I agree. Sorry to interrupt, but the question is apt. You know, how would you? How 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 does a ministry get sustained? I was I was asking my myself that question. How does somebody? What does somebody think they're doing in the Christian ministry? Um, where it's all about kind of Christ as a moral example and barely mentioning his work other than, you know, kind of example, you know, unconditional love and things like that, but more in a, a therapeutic context. Right, right. Yeah, good point. So let me uh, let me talk about some of, of what he highlights in the article just so people even know what we're talking about if they hadn't read it. But he, he starts out by talking about how uh, a Barna study in, in March of 2022 said that 42% of pastors considered quitting. And the reasons, he lists five reasons for this with different percentages, uh, the immense stress of the job, being lonely and isolated, current political divisions, unhappy with the effect that his role has had on family, and not optimistic about the future of the church that the person is serving. And I think when you look at stats like that, you don't have to be a Bardian or a liberal or a conservative to uh, feel stress and lonely and, and division and uh, how it's affecting the family. He goes on to list all the things that he has to be. And I, you know, he says he has a thousand bosses because of the number of the congregation and um, unrealistic expectations. Uh, some, some of this was actually like was a turnoff for me. He talked about how much time goes into an MDiv for the amount of money you get paid. Yeah. And, and I was just like, yeah, but you're going in the ministry. You're not going in for money, but, I, but I do, I do get, we need it. We need a livable wage. Well, let me, let, let me jump in. He, he talked yeah. about, you know, the average salary for a PCUSA pastor was $55,000. Uh, he's not making 55,000. He's probably making 155,000 with the size of his church. Right. Uh, and, um, you know, most PCA pastors make, you know, our our ministers average a lot more than fifty five thousand. So I thought that was just sort of a you know he was trying to that was sort of a point scoring thing. Um, but yeah, I, I think he's doing better than that. I didn't I didn't um, I didn't buy the money argument. He does a lot of like in his sermon too. He he likes to throw out that he attended Princeton and Oxford and all this other stuff. So there's a lot more going on there in terms of just you know kind of like straining his arm to pat himself on the back in terms of how how impressive he thinks he is too. Yes, I, and you it, know, I, I at least that's my opinion. I mean, I just you know it, it just didn't strike me as as something that was useful. The other thing that you you know the other part that you didn't mention that sort of bothers me, and I think that this gets to your understanding of the ministry is the kind of the burden that he felt when people were sharing things with him. And I think that if you don't have a good sense of of sin, of indwelling sin, and if you don't feel like, you know, union with Christ involves him united a sin a sinner to himself and you don't even hardly have categories for that. If you're if your focus is on vulnerability and un unconditional love of God, I can imagine it would be burdensome thinking about, man, look at all these people that have all these shortcomings in the church. But, you know, yeah. my, my perspective on people who have sins is like, well, that, that doesn't really surprise me. You know, that, 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 that's sort of like who I am, not necessarily the exact same sins, but I don't, I don't look at people sideways when they share strange things. And I don't, I don't think of it as a burden to carry these quote unquote secrets around like people that are sharing these things. You know, I think that the hardest part I have to explain to people sometimes 
is for them to get over the sense in which they're they're some somehow more despicable than the Christians around them because I, I that's not my perspective on it and it it just all of these things and this is part of the disappointment on PCA pastors reading this and not seeing be reading between the lines and saying why is he saying these things in this perspective because the numbers don't all tell a story I mean people are stressed out in all sorts of walks of life and I don't I don't mean to minimize the down the 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 difficulties of the pastoral ministry, but there's a little bit of navel gazing on this um, to, to talk about this, and um, you know it's going to be hard, and people are leaving for all sorts of reasons. But a number of reasons may be that churches are you know they're off mission and they're focusing on things. And I've always believed that if you are trying to plant something or do something that's not spirit empowered, then of course you're going to get burned out if you're doing th- something according to the flesh. Yeah, they, they, he doesn't have our doctrine of sin. Um, he doesn't uh, doesn't have our doctrine of total depravity. I mean, uh, basically, uh, liberal Christianity uh, believes that that people are good. Uh, it, it's a it's a view of human nature much more in line with you know unbelievers than with the one that we should have. And it's interesting, Rich, that you talked about being surprised by sin because I've I think I've written or tweeted about this recently. You know, if you, you shouldn't be surprised by sin as, as a, a, a reformed Christian. Uh, the doctrine of total depravity, uh, while it's you know it's bad news, but it really ought to inform everything that we do, and yeah. we shouldn't be. You know, I'll just I'll, I'll tell you the truth. At, at a point in the past in our church. You know, we'd had some real challenges with a building, and we had to be in a temporary space, and we were trying to build a new building. But things were going great. We were growing in this hideous building that we had to rent while our new building was being built. And just everybody was happy, and we were growing in this. Again, it was just a bad situation. And I said to, you know, my fellow elders, I named off, I said, things are going too well. I said, mm. and I, I sort of predicted, you know, two or three normal kind of sinful things that could happen, very bad things, but not unusual. And I said, you know, I think we could, I think probably within the next three years, all these these three things that I mentioned are going to happen, and they did. I was not happy that my that my pseudo prophecy came true, uh, and it didn't make any of that stuff any easier. But we should not be surprised by sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you know, I think if we're, you know, unusually favored, we're probably being set up. You know, when things are going too well, we should worry. We should look at ourselves. We should be happy uh, whenever things are going well. But we need to remember that sin has not been, you know, the penalty of sin for Christians has been canceled, but sin in the world has not been canceled. Uh, we can't make it go away by wishing it away, or you know, by social programs or church programs or anything else. Uh, we we yeah, can have such a we can have such a view of sanctification that we we think there shouldn't hardly be any sin, and that's just not just not so. Um, so and, and back yeah, to, no, the, that, that, to, to the burden and the secrets thing, you know, I, the ruling elders know uh, ought to know as much about what's going on in people's lives as the pastors do. Mm-hmm. I know all kinds of stuff, but you know, I'm still happy to see people at church and talk to them and. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's my personality, but I'm, I, I, his, some of his concerns and struggles 
air quotes, didn't ring true to me. Well, did, but didn't, so doesn't some of that also speak to, you know, our, our doctrine and concept of calling? Like, first of all, it doesn't, it doesn't come natural to me to, to bear the burdens of other in, in my flesh, in my former life and anything else. But I have learned there's a, there's a sweetness in that, in, in ministry as I, in our church, we have, there, there's some side wings where the seats are angled and usually I'm sitting on, my family sits on one of those wings. And so at, at the times when we're singing songs, I have a view of the congregation as much as I have a view of the pulpit. And sometimes I almost like a wave of emotion comes over me as I'm singing people lifting voices to our Lord, knowing what each one is dealing with in their homes, in their marriages, with their parents, with their kids, in their jobs. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is the Lord's people singing praises to him. And and it sends like a wave of emotion over me. And it really, like sometimes I feel bad that I'm looking at them instead of focusing on the Lord. But then I'm like, oh, the Lord is actually preparing me to preach his word to a people that I'm going to speak the good news to. And if it is a burden, but Paul talks about that in his letters too, in, in 2 Corinthians in particular, but, you know, bearing the burdens of what's going on in the church and, and as elders, that's part of the calling, is it not? Well, yeah, and it, it's interesting what you say about the singing. You know, my pastor will sometimes just stop singing in the pulpit because we don't have a song leader. You know, the pastor or the ruling elder is in the pulpit during the singing, and he'll just stop and listen. And he mm. talks about how important that is to him. But, you know, that's, that's why public worship is so important, uh, to be together and to hear other people confess. People know better or worse than you. Uh, and to uh, sing and to pray and then to enjoy the Lord's Supper with people, uh, that's that's a very underrated benefit. It's something you don't get on a live stream or listening to, you know, a sermon by some great preacher while you're driving down the road. It's uh, There's so much more to it than that. Well, I, I'm glad he, he does that because that makes me feel a little bit better about what I, about my, uh, but as I continue with this article, some of the other things, he says, putting it all together as he lists a litany of different things, he says uh, these seven things. He's a professional speaker, a CEO, a counselor, a fundraiser, a human resources director, a master of ceremonies, a pillar of virtue. And and it's it's all this stuff. And I'm like, I, I grew up in a small business. My parents ran a small business for 40-something years. I'm like, yeah, that's 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 what a lot of even people in in the world have to do when you you, mm-hmm. you become everything and the solo pastor becomes everything and we may be frustrated at some of that and we may even think some of it is uh to 20 20th and 21st century that you know it would have been simpler in the early church perhaps but is all that part of the ministry too rich well pastors well, are not you know- fundraisers they shouldn't you know i don't know if any pastor who thinks of themselves as a fundraiser I mean, I don't know how it it is in other churches, but our pastors don't know how much people give. I mean, the treasurers know that. Uh, The pastor is not calling up people saying, well, you were a little little low this month. You know, try to pick it up next month. It just doesn't happen. Um, I don't don't get the fundraising thing. And, I mean, that's a business model. Um, It's like he's... Basically, a Peace USA pastor is the head of a nonprofit organization, 
non, a nonprofit social organization. Yeah. Um, it's not. So it's did not, your pastor? Did your pastor not have to do any fundraising for the building campaign or whatever you did? No, to no, be, no. That's great. Praise no, God. We just no, not at all. Yeah, I mean, I guess you know, kind of like at least zooming out a little bit. Part of that issue is again knowing what the mission of a church is. You know, I'm not. You know, I, I was about to ask Brad to state new exceptions where he's like continuation of new charismatic gifts because he, he mentioned a prophecy. But I've been I've been semi prophesying the demise of some missional churches for some time because you when you are so focused on transformation of thing you know transformation of things that a church is not called to and your energy is toward that and you're not seeing that happen because the church was never called to certain things, then you're going to get burned out. And if you think that the mission of the uh, the church or the session is to do all of these things, you know, and, and, and part of it could be just, again, a little bit of narcissism here, as if he takes credit for all these things instead of the fact that he's just kind of like maybe as the senior pastor part of a session, too, because they haven't gotten rid of that. It may be, you know, coming in and out, but... Um, other people are doing things. He's not. He's not doing all that now. Now the pastor's probably talking to the session about some of those things that are occurring during reports. But again, you, you, your, your, your um, area of of concern is is greatly diminished when you stop thinking about all the things that you know are going or on around you culturally or other kinds of things if you know what the mission of the church is and what you know you're trying to do to shepherd your people and to bring them through and to to sanctify them to be focusing on preaching the word and and the sacraments and other in in prayer and all those things that are are means of grace then i think that you're you're prone to those kinds of you know burnouts because if you think you're doing all those other things and you don't see the fruit, then that just brings frustration as well. So, so uh, I, I agree with all that wholeheartedly. But let me let me push back a little because as I talk to other pastors, even in the PCA, particularly in solo pastor situations, which I'd love to see a study on that if that's the majority of churches or not. But a lot he he talks about this in the context of unrealistic expectations. So I do think he often sees himself as those things. But I think maybe why this has resonated with a lot of pastors is because they get into churches and they may not have had those expectations as they stepped into a call, but the church suddenly expects those things from them. And I think there's a cumulative effect to it, right? Like it's not any one congregant that thinks you're all ten of these things, mm-hmm. but it's it's. 30 different congregants that each think you're and there's all these overlaps and you fu- you suddenly realize your job description is is 40 things you know do you, do you see any of that um playing into this at all i think that that happens for sure i can't i can't speak to every pastor's experience of churches that are that you know maybe have weak a weak session um poorly trained elders um, don't really understand their role in terms of, you know, providing kind of cover fire and other kinds of things, or even a strong diaconate to take care of other kinds of things and organizing properly. And then it's easy, maybe in a lazy way, to devolve on the pastor because he's the full-time hireling, as it were, that somebody might treat him like that or something like that. And I know that's not what they are. 
And so yeah. that certainly happens, but it's not by design, right? It shouldn't be that way. So, right. you know, I, I can't, I, you know, there's, there, you know, except I'm sure there, there are things that happen out there that occur where people are, are placed in situations where elders aren't necessarily doing their role. I think that, that being said, you know, there needs to be, there need, you know, I think that again, if you, if you, if you're not taking all on all the things that the person said, that at least reduces the surface area of stress, right? In terms of what he, he thinks he should be, because he thinks he's those things. He doesn't just say those are necessarily things that, you know, necessarily they said, but he kind of assigns himself those roles in some ways. And that church is big enough to know that he wasn't doing all those things by himself, just <laughs> locked into a room all the time doing that. Yeah. Brad? Let me say that um, I said pastors shouldn't be fundraisers. Uh, a lot of church planners are fundraisers, and they're going to take um, uh, issue with my statement. That's true. But I don't think... Well, let's say this. We have an entrepreneurial church planning model in our denomination. Uh, maybe that's the reason we plant so many churches. Uh, the OPC doesn't require a church planner to raise any money. They have a, they're fully funded before they go on the field. They've got three years budget or so <clears throat> from day one, and they don't have to raise any of it. Uh, but they don't plant very many churches. I get that. But our model is such that um, church planners do spend a tremendous amount of time raising money, and uh, so that is a problem. But I think I think we have a bad model there, uh, and some of these, some of our young, you know, generally it takes four to five years for a church plant to particularize, and what you have there, you have a pastor who is, in my opinion who's operated like a bishop, uh, you know, the, the man for, you know, again, three to five years. And I don't know, I think that affects some people permanently. And they have a hard time being a Presbyterian and operating as a Presbyterian. Uh, they, I see they, that, though, of, Brad. I see that, Brad, Brad, though, as a defect in whatever the Presbytery set up for that, right? So, you know, the particularization well, it's not, it's not should... The Presbytery. It's not the Presbytery. It's the MNA. It's our model right now. No, it is, but you still have you still have to... The Presbytery has to agree to certain things in terms of how that plant's going to go in, in terms of, like, whether or not you're going to set up a commission or something like that, a provisional session or a daughter church. You've got different things like that. So if a man's left to himself and he's got to do all those things... Then shame on you know whatever whatever model is set up for him. I I agree that's a problem that can become a problem. And even I've seen problems with certain people even under under a healthy session. There's sort of at least sometimes a youthful or an early thing, like kind of an exuberance by some pastors, even with that oversight to kind of push the boundaries because they don't realize kind of what they're getting themselves into because there's a honeymoon phase in ministry I've seen a number of times with, you know, people who are excited about the plant and all sorts of other things and problems don't arise until later that could have been corrected if the person had a more mature outlook on terms of, you know, making sure that the things they were setting up were going to kind of be durable, if that makes sense. Well, your point about the mission of the church, I've been thinking about that the last couple of days as I 
considered coming on here. Um, if we have, you know, we, I think the three of us would all agree that what we call an ordinary means of grace ministry model is what we uh, adhere to, or that's what the ideal is. And that means that the most important thing the church does occurs on the Lord's Day, and it's public worship. Uh, there are mm-hmm. other things, but there's nothing more important uh, than worship back to church plants. You have church plants that don't start worshiping for two or three years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I'm sure that sounds crazy to some people, uh, but they say that if you, you know, if you don't have a hundred people uh, in your or, you know, that 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 you've sort of got attached to before you start worshiping, you'll never get bigger than that. Uh, it's it's very it's a very strange. I'm sure there's uh, studies and experts who have uh, you know good reasons and justifications for this, but I just I can't relate to it. Um, hmm. I think I think whatever, however you start, is probably how you're going to finish. And if it's all about uh, the 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 city and uh, social justice and transformationalism. You know, it's it's going to have to keep on being that way. What what you use to attract people is what you're going to have to use to keep them. Uh, so I think it's better to have a humble view of the ministry of the church, uh, a, a fairly narrow view that doesn't require you to start with three staff members on day one and a five hundred thousand dollar budget. And there are a lot of church plant planning models that tell you that's the way you got to do it. You've got to have a worship a pastor director. You've got to have a children's uh, director on day one, you know. Hmm. And uh, the model, the model is crazy to me, but it's all about the mission of the church. I think that that could be the next debate in the PCA is what is the mission of the church. So, to, just to just to use that to bring to bring it back to sort of this concept you mentioned there, and I know this is this is a big theme for you also in, in Machen's uh, Christianity and liberalism, that sort of that last chapter, the exhausting nature of trying to solve every problem everywhere. And you had just mentioned, you know, social justice and win the city and this and that. I mean, do you think some of that plays into the frustrations of, of pastors who want one model for their church, but they're placed in a model where the congregation wants congregational wants maybe ordinary means of grace ministry, but their pastor wants more, uh, more missional philosophy and mindset. Oh, I know of a church plant that just not in my presbytery, but they just totally flamed out and fell apart. Actually, it's sort of recovered now. Uh, but you had someone trying to plan a redeemer style uh, city church in a mid-sized town that was not terribly sophisticated. You know, we're talking about a southern um, middle-class town. And that model, in my opinion, was they tried to impose that, and it just didn't work. Um, And, yeah, uh, people want, I don't know about a lot of PCA churches, but what a good PCA church has to offer, in my opinion, besides doctrine, um, is, is worship. Uh, worship that's regulated by Scripture. And I think a lot of people who are coming into Napark churches in the last few years, A, they want a church that does worship and doesn't shut down completely for three years because of a, a virus. Uh, but they all, you know, the distinctive thing that we have to offer is biblical worship. Because where where are you going to find it? You don't find it in the mega church. You don't find it in most independent Baptist churches. Uh, we should do what we're good at, 
and uh, what's distinctive about our I mean the, the the principle of the Reformation, the the the, the Calvinist Reformation. Uh, you know, Calvin in uh, in, in uh, the little pamphlet necessity of reforming the church he puts worship ahead of doctrine now he doesn't always do that but he did he says the most you know and because there's a formative effect in worship on individuals and on families and on churches but also it affects our doctrine of god if we worship yeah. as if god is sovereign and holy and almighty and immense and immortal um, our people are going to get the idea that's the way God is, and if it's if it's something less than that, I, I worry about um, mm. about our well, he, well, theology. You know, theology proper. Mm-hmm. Well, he talks about in, in the article. This I don't know if he's bringing social sciences in, but he talks about a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset, and his mindset was the growth mindset, and the congregation apparently was the fixed mindset. And but false dichotomies aside, I think. You know, I, I mean, my background is from the business world. I was an engineer at P&G, and I've run businesses. And, I mean, I'm always looking for employees that don't, don't really want the job that they have. They want to make the job they have what they want to do. And I often wonder if that's what's going on with this pastor or maybe some other pastors that are overly frustrated with the call they have. It's like it's almost like they don't want the call they have, but and then they don't want to leave the call they have, so they try to make the call they have the call they want. So that makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, in this case, the fixed mindset that he's railing against are are the few holdouts that actually seem to have believed in Christianity. You know, right. um, and and when you read between the lines, he's impressed. Of course, you know, honestly, I I guess I've been around long enough where I've got enough degrees. I read a lot. I'm just not impressed with people who are impressed with themselves intellectually and I can kind of see right through the holes of how how in in what in in what shallow ways he's bringing things up I mean like he even talks about in his sermon that he preached like oh well agape always means the unconditional love of God it's like you you can't even you you're not even like translating the Greek word right because that's not true I mean if you even were we're, we're doing half the job that you think you've done because you're an Oxford and Princeton grad, you would have figured that out. But, you know, I guess the, the thing for me is that that gets back to, again, what is, what is reality? What are, you, what are you going after? What is this ministry about? What are we trying to form in people? You know, it kind of gets to this issue of pastoral care, too, that I, I know we're going to talk about. And what, what are we doing with disciples? Because, you know, when when he's talking, it's all about me, me. Have you heard about me? Have you heard about how much was? But everything in the everything in in the Christian life is about y'all. You you all press forward. Um, we press forward together. The head is no more important than the hand. That then can the eye say to the ear, "I don't need you," and all this other thing. And and everything for him is like about what he did and all these other things. He never he never really expresses the fact that we you know this idea that what he was doing was trying to push them forward in the sense because what we're battling against is sin and death. We're battling against principalities and powers. We're dealing with the 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 world, the flesh, and the devil. And if you don't have that in your grid. Then you're not. Then then you're 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 just off. It's just completely missing the mark. It's not even the Christian faith in terms of what what you know. That's the mission. It's it's worship, 
and sacraments, prayer, but all of those other things that go into us pressing together and having to deal with um, with death and all of the sorrows and all the other things. I mean, I, I was looking at my text today because we're dealing with a man who could be could be dying literally within a couple of days in our congregation. And you know how how do we how do we press forward? I mean, this is a, a saintly person that that still, with all of his saintliness, um, in terms of just the seeming outward trust, still struggles with the sense of whether God loves him and that sort of thing. And how do you press forward with him? How do you walk forward with him and his wife and comfort him? How do you comfort a pastor who loses his daughter and his wife and his 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 children who are who are dealing with that if you don't have the hope of the resurrection? How do you continue to stand? You know? Not just and and so all of this stuff is just so all of these things about how like he had to memorize sermons and how he had to do bear all this stuff to me is just so much dung. So much garbage compared to what the 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 battle that we're up against and I'm 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 so tired of all of the the therapeutic that you know how I'm feeling about things rather than dealing with the fact that hey okay if 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 you're struggling then then take a knee we'll put a perimeter around you and protect you but we're pressing in together we're not going to leave anybody behind but don't make it all about how hard things are you. What what do you what is your concern with respect to the way you're dealing with this that deals with how the 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 people of God who are called by God are pressing forward against the gates of hell and dealing with these things. And any other discussion about how we're how we're how we're feeling emotionally and struggling with those things are interesting, but then back up and think about the group and and then say if I if you need our help, if you need our support, then we're going to circle around you. We're not going to make you carry the burden alone. But don't think but 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 remember what the mission is about because we're on the march together. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, you were you were preaching, well, exhorting to Brad, but uh absolutely and you know I in my own life, so I, again, I was an engineer and and I am a, a driven person uh not in military or anything like that, but I have a, I have a way of thinking it's all on me and I have to fight that. And in God's grace, I'm 48, I'm, I'm learning. But what really struck me was I can't solve every problem in the church. I can't solve every person's problem, every property problem, every, I can't even solve all the problems in my own life. And it's because I'm not Jesus Christ. And once we remember we're not we're not Christ, we can't solve these problems. And then also, in our polity, like you just said, like I love that the 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 military imagery you just gave us of the session around their pastor, perhaps, or around any one of their brothers that needs them to or be the around. Congregation as a whole. Amen. And so, yeah, and I think really that is the power of of Presbyterianism, and that's some of the the sadness of this article is he's supposedly in a Presbyterian denomination, but um. This really, I think, is where the session comes in, and particularly the ruling elders, to help their pastor not feel like they're in it alone, and also reconceptualize how they're viewing certain things while taking serious the struggles of the of, of the ministry for the man. And so, uh, what are some as we try to round it to that the pastoral pastoral care of of teaching elders, but it could be for ruling elders. What are some because I again I think this resonated with so many in, in the PCA 
And I, even guys that said, man, I see a lot of what he's saying, but like he's missing the mark in all these areas. And even myself in reading it, like I could see there were some insights there that that resonated with me. And you, you guys remember, I mean, I'm, I'm still at a point where I was a ruling elder more than I was a teaching elder. So I, I, know, I know both sides of the coin. Um, but I'm glad for, for a session that helps pull me back from devolving into what this guy is, is saying. So I really don't have a specific question at this point, just on, on what I just said, is there any um, initial thoughts as we move into this part of the conversation? Well, I, I think, um, I think, you know, I go ahead, Brad. Oh, well, um, as far as ruling elders helping their own pastors, um, I think the hardest thing that any ruling elder ever does is correct or point out weaknesses to their pastor. But it's probably one of the most important things that you can do. And as a new ruling elder going in, um, don't be surprised that your pastor or pastors are sinners. And don't be surprised by sin in them either. Uh, you, you can't put them on a pedal, pedestal uh, any more than you can put your well, you can put your wife on a pedestal, but you know if you're me, otherwise you can't. You don't put anybody on a pedestal and uh, think they're think they're you know practically perfect. Um, you shouldn't be surprised that in every pastor, every man has weaknesses and struggles and uh, imperfections. And uh, does that when include you, Sean Morris? Wait a minute. Is oh yeah. It, would yeah, Sean Morris admit to that? Oh yeah, oh, absolutely. His wife, his wife could fill you in. Absolutely. <laughs> I was sitting next to her tonight. So, yes, no doubt. Um, but knowing when and how to correct a pastor um, is very difficult. And, you know, I think, I think, but, you know, I hear horror stories about sessions that abuse their pastors and run, run all over them. I've never been a part of that. I've been blessed to, to be in such a, a, a wonderful church. Um, but it, it's just it, the the dynamic makes it difficult to to um, to correct and to but you you um, and, and you want you want to encourage anytime you can. But uh, you know I think it's in the heart of every person to sort of well two things either just be passive and lazy and let things go or to try to domineer. And uh, we just need to fight both of those tendencies. I mean that's what Presbyterians about. Presbyterianism is about the plurality of elders means that no one person is in charge. I mean, the pastor, by virtue, I think, you know, our BCO says, by virtue of his office, he's the moderator of the session, he runs the meetings, he sets the agenda in some sense, but but he doesn't have any more ultimate authority, uh, especially in, in voting and in, uh, you know, the leadership of the church than anyone else. And uh, we just... There's, we, we need to remember to be Presbyterians. We need to remember the plurality and, you know, the equality uh, of sorts between uh, the elders. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge and a blessing. I mean, there, let me quickly, in case we don't have a lot of time, the ways to support a pastor uh, is to be reasonable. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned our associate pastor. They just had a baby. You know, we've given him a sort of paternity leave. He's still preaching, but he doesn't, he doesn't have to come into the office for a couple of weeks. And that's not written into his, you know, contract or his call. But we just saw that that's a good thing to do for him. Uh, 
You want to be flexible. You don't want to treat it like an employer-employee relationship. Uh, it's it, it's a it's a family uh, brothers relationship, and the pastor shouldn't take advantage of that. But neither should you take advantage of of the pastor. So there's just there's just all sorts of things you can do to be to be uh, thoughtful and reasonable and um, and and realize that the difficulty of the job and the very random times that you know that may be involved in you know you, you middle of the night weekends sunday so you want to be flexible with what you require you, you don't you don't make them punch a clock uh you try to be you try to be reasonable that's good those are great input god rich yeah no I, I i think that was great i i mean like a number of things are swirling through my head um i think that um you know Lest anybody get the impression that I don't think the ministry is hard, I think that um, you know being a ruling elder or a teaching elder is impossible without the grace of God, without mm. the indwelling work of the Spirit and that sort of thing. But there's also a, a togetherness that has to go with that. It's part of the call of the church constantly to be working together towards those things. And so, you know... Um, analogies fall fall down but um one of the things that that uh doug kittredge who's the pastor of hope of christ i'm I'm sorry new life in christ down in fredericksburg once said many years ago is he said one of the reasons he likes the session is because when he grew up he didn't have any brothers he uh and he he would be hanging around his friends and his his friends would be trash talking their brothers and then he would jump in and say Oh yeah, he's a real jerk. And then the guy would turn to him and go, "Hey man, that's my brother you're talking about." You know, because it's one thing for for me to pick on my little brother growing up, but it's another thing for anybody else to do that. And I think that if there's not and and that that's obviously you got to be careful with that analogy, but there is a real sense in which um you know, the session should be taking care of each other in that sense, you know, be watching out for each other. And if you're not watching out for your pastor, um, you know, like I, I remember a while back, some person came and visited and wrote a note to um, to the session telling us why he wasn't going to be attending the church anymore because he felt like the sermons weren't exegetical. So, you know, I nobody asked me to do it, but I basically took him down. I, I mean, I was like, okay. I mean, I was nice about it, but I was basically going to, you know, like you think you're impressed with yourself, but this was exegetical. And um, I found out afterwards, because pastors deal with these kinds of burdens, they, they, they get frustrated, like, that maybe I really am not doing that. And then, and then um, his, my pastor's wife said, don't worry, some, he's going to say, don't worry, Rich is probably going to say something at the time. And I did, because I'm not going to put up with that kind of stuff. Now, you know, if there's things that I need to talk to, to the pastor about, I will. I also think it's he- it's healthy, if possible, for friendships to actually natural friendships to occur within the session to be able to have conversations, to be able to check in, to be able to have the kind of shepherding kinds of conversations about the pastor and his family as you would with other kinds of people, to be able to ha- have those kinds of conversations so that it's not just, you know, like, you know, generic, you know, but you really get to know the person and you're really, you know, invested in their lives. And so, you know, I think you all know that um, uh, our pastor's daughter died at the one year anniversary is coming up 
soon. And so I was asked to preach the funeral. And I, I got to tell you, I'm still still overwhelmed by the by the uh, by the burden that that was to the privilege given or the the trust given by the family to do that. Um, but you know. He's my friend, you know, like I, I said, like, you know, Doc Holliday, when, you know, in that one movie goes like, why, why are you doing this? Like, you know, you, uh, he said, because because Wyatt Earp's my friend. He said, I've got lots of friends. And Doc Holliday said, I don't. And that's kind of the way I feel. I have a lot of really good acquaintances, but only a, a few tight friends. And he's one of them. And so, you know, those are those are important things, because. When you're dealing with those kinds of losses, he's a person just like anybody else. And when you've lost a child, um, you know, all of this other stuff this guy is talking about is almost like, it's like, si sign him up for that. Because he'd rather have all of that stuff that that person talked about rather than dealing on a daily basis with the fact that he lost a daughter and his, and his wife lost a daughter. And how do you endure in the Christian faith with the hope of the resurrection, knowing you're going to see your daughter again? It's because, it's because in reality, Christ is at the head and he's our captain and we're looking forward and he's, 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 he's pressing forward. And sometimes the formation march that's going on says, hey, we're going to carry your pack for a while. We're going to watch out for you. We're going to take care of you. We're going to watch out for you. And I and and so I'm sad to hear about if there's PCA pastors out there that aren't that don't have anybody around them in the church that would ever carry their pack or their wife's pack or their children's pack or whatever to show them the gospel isn't about their performance or any other thing. I grieve about that, but not because this guy wrote that article that doesn't express any of the need, the the hope of the resurrection or the reason why we're able to press forward under suffering and that sort of thing. And so at the end of the day, if if a session isn't isn't really focused upon what the gospel is dealing with, you know, I think I can't remember you said it earlier, uh, it was either you or Brad was even reflecting upon it to just today, the fact that once you understand how horrible sin is, you know, because I was listening to Bob Inc. on this too. Once you understand how horrible sin is and you were a sinner and the fact that Christ has taken away the reproach of your sin and the power of the sin, that's pretty remarkable news. And the fact that you've got the hope of the resurrection. And, and so we're still battling sin and death and all that other stuff. But if you're not pointed at that and you're not, and you don't have people around you as a together, we're moving, we're, we're pressing forward together. And that, in that head that's speaking for the congregation and preaching the word is, is so important. But he needs that. He needs that encouragement. He needs that occasional pack carrying just like everybody else. He's fall he may be falling behind in the formation too because he's weary and all we're and, and, and we're we're called to stand and endure. And sometimes we need encouragement to endure. And so, you know, sessions, if you're not doing that, then you're failing. You're 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 failing your ministry because one of the people in your congregation that though he may not be formally a member of your congregation, his wife and his family is, but he's still he's still close to you and you need to be taking care of him. And you're failing as a session if he's not feeling that 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 uh that up that that fact that people are behind him behind him and supporting him. Wow. I yeah, man, you just said it 
you just said it all, and you re- and you made a tombstone reference, which was which was great. And so thank you. For- <laughs> I love movie references. Like I know that was, that was a good one. And you listen to Bovink. I, I would. I, <laughs> um, you know what? One thing I I try to help teaching elders understand. You know, ruling the ruling elder side of things. Like you guys are, you work full time jobs. If you're going to do church work, you're coming in on your off time, your free time. For teaching elders, if we have, you know, night meetings, we might be able to sleep in the next morning if we don't have a, a you know, a, a, an appointment. And so I try to help our uh, TEs help understand some of the the struggles that REs have to do as they juggle their own lives and and ministry. And um, but one thing I like to help REs understand, and I think you you highlighted it well about being on you know on the on the teaching elder side is, I got to say when I was a ruling elder, there's something invigorating to me about pressing into difficult situations in the church. It was almost like there were times in my in my professional career, w- whatever I was doing, where work was frustrating. And I really would rather be focusing on the, this issue going on in the church. And that was driving me. And I didn't mind going in late for it. I didn't mind coming in Saturday morning and, and working with a couple or something. And because it was, I mean, I, f- I felt like it was purpose, right? But there also is a distraction from the 40 or 50 hour week that, job that I'm working. And the thing is, once you come into the full-time ministry that, to, of a teaching elder, I wonder if there's just not an escape. Like it's always there, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of pastors, they, I mean, their life is their family and their ministry, and there's not maybe some other thing they do for, for self. And, uh, so I think ruling elders understanding what you just said, Rich, essentially is, you know, treating your pastor as, as, as a human being who, who needs that brotherhood. Uh, I love the friendship reference you made. And, um, sometimes I think, even some ruling elders think their pastors are Superman, especially if they're type A. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm a type A guy. I I don't have a problem speaking hard things to the congregation, to individuals. And sometimes people can think that that means I don't have my own insecurities. Um, that almost like I'm an iron man or something, you know, and nothing's further from the truth. I, I am as insecure as the next guy. The Lord has enabled me and maybe it's time in corporate America or whatever he's worked in my life to be able to, do hard things and say hard things, but it doesn't mean it's easy internally for me and have ruling elders understand that and then be in it with me. And then also to say they're willing to take it sometimes on my behalf, maybe like you did for that pastor with the sermon. I mean, I think I I have a session right now that when we're dealing with hard things, they're concerned sometimes for my pulpit ministry if I'm the one who has to have the hard conversation with a with an upset congregant, mm. and and they're like George, we'd rather we'll handle this this conversation and we'll shepherd this congregant, and you just be there to you know to to love on them and support them in other ways, and uh, that's hard for me because I want to deal with it, you know. But uh, I, I don't know if you have you guys ever found that there's certain situations that you as ruling elders feel like you ought to protect your pastor. And so you want you you or another elder deals with it so that pastor doesn't have to. Yeah, I mean, I think that should be the case. I mean, if if 
from a shepherding perspective as well, there doesn't need, you know, there, there should be some kind of like saying of like, rather than just saying, well, this needs to get done. People need to, you know, it's sort of like, well, somebody should be doing that. It's like, my, my, it, it's, it, we, we have kind of a policy, like if you're excited about something, then you're the person that's probably going to have to be in charge of doing that because the somebody that should be doing that is probably you if you really think that that's important. Um, and so I think that there's that. And I, I, I appreciate what you said because there's a certain sense in which, you know, even being remote from work, I can almost never turn off being like working all the time. So I can understand probably that full-time ministry in terms of the burdens of that feels like there's just never an end to it because something you might be thinking about it, but then you're brought back into it. But I think that that's, that's part of making sure that, you know, as pastors are thinking about how they're training their session and the expectations on that, and even a healthy church moving forward is making sure that those things, some of those things are being are being divided up so that there isn't a sense in which everything's on that person and that there, you know, there needs to be a place for the pastor, somebody for him to be able to talk to, just to be able to have a conversation to take his mind off of things or to be able to express those things. And I know that's why a lot of pastors talk to each other, or have groups to talk because they're dealing with things that REs don't necessarily understand with, but it sure is, sure would be helpful in a church, um, if the pastor can just sit down and and you know have an and be an have a relationship with an elder to where the elder is able to ask him, hey, how's how's your daughter doing? How how how's your wife doing? Is she sleeping okay? And that sort of thing, and to be able to do that without feeling like I don't really know if I know you that well. Yeah, you know, kind of you know the uncomfortable kind of thing. And I'm not saying that he needs to try and force that situation, but it it, it should be an ask. It, it, it would, would would be a nice aspirational thing for an elder to be able to be close enough to the pastor and his family to be able to have conversations to where when they're dealing with things, they, they know who the person they're dealing with, and it's not just the person they, they see on a semi-regular basis. Yeah, Rich. Brad, you got thoughts on any of that? Um, well, so, you know... I'm a great uh, I'm a great goer to funerals, um, and uh, I think you know if if your if your pastor's mother or dad dies, go to the funeral. Somebody should do that. Um, that's just a very simple thing. Um, I mean, our, our our ex, one of our former pastors. I, I think I've been to the funeral of both of his parents, uh, and that was after he left. Uh, it's just a simple thing. My, my dad, it seems like he, you know, he's 83. And um, as I was growing up, he was a deacon in the Baptist church. And he also just knew a lot of people. And he went to a funeral or visited somebody in the hospital. It seemed like every night of the week. Um, it just, it's simple things. You know, we had a pastor that had a uh, a child who had a very serious, you know, near-death health problem. And um, you know, we were just, we were all there. We, you know, the whole session was there at the hospital and we, you didn't have to tell us we needed to do that. That's just normal. So there's some very simple things you could do. Um, just, you know, what you would do for anyone else do, do for the pastor. Um, but it's, um, and and what Nick said about knowing, I mean, what uh, Rich said about knowing the family and all that, that's good. I mean, they, they need privacy. You're not going to be right in the middle of everything. 
Uh, but you, you know, you listen and you just do what you you just do the do the right thing. It's not uh, it's not complicated. There's not a there's not a procedure manual or a process or uh, instructions for everything. Um, but uh, you know, I feel sorry for for pastors that have two elders. Or they're a five-year non-particularized church planner, and they don't have any. You know, they've got a remote session somewhere. I, I really don't know how they do it, uh, and that's mm-hmm. why we really need to be Presbyterian. We really, really—it's the biblical model that you have a plurality of elders, uh, more than one. Uh, you know, preferably three, four, five, six for a decent-sized church, and there's a lot of work for all of them. Yeah. Wow. That's. That's really good. I, I mean, I had, I'm just making that connection now, like more, um, more literally, the connection between a plurality of elders and being Presbyterian and the support that we each get. Um, so it's not just it's not just a plurality of elders that there's decisions are being made by more than one person, and so there's you know wisdom in a multitude of counsel. But it's the iron sharpening iron aspect of of what it is to lock arms with other brothers who care about you. And that's what I've heard from both of you, you men, uh, you care about your pastors and you well, care about your other ruling elders. Our senior pastor is sort of a, he's, he's a, he's an expert on the offices. He's sort of an authority on Southern Presbyterian ecclesiology, which is, you know, much bigger on ruling elders and even the role of deacon than the Northern church ever was. And, uh, he made an effort when he came here, a good, gosh, uh, f- uh, 14, 15 years ago, uh, to make the ruling elders more visible into, you know, so most Sundays a ruling elder does the announcements and does the call to worship, and then the pastor will take over. Um, but he knew that, uh, you know, he had been a Baptist. He grew up a Baptist. He knew he needed ruling elders, and he knew the church needed them. And so a good, you know, the advice for pastors is uh, make your ruling elders, you know, make make them Presbyterian and teach them what their job is and how important it it is um, and respect them because they're going to help you a whole lot. And they're going to, you know, be be able to delegate, uh, you know, have the deacons doing what they should do and the ruling elders doing what they should do. And it's going to make your... It's going to make your job easier, I think. Yeah, no, no doubt, no doubt. Any final words, guys? Anything we didn't we didn't touch on that we said we would, or you wanted to, or? Well, it's just an honor to be you know, with I... two two preachers. You know, <laughs> Thanks, the pastor man. preacher and the ruling elder preacher. And uh, look, yeah. I, I know I know Rich is a great guy because we've got people in our church that that knew him when he was just a an officer in a Reformed Baptist church somewhere in the Pacific. You know, way back in the Air Force days or whatever, whatever Rich was. Don't you dare ever call me Air Force. You're thinking of that when you were in the Air Force. It's nearly as good as Air Force. That's like uh, my my friends were in the Air Force. I don't know. I like if I was in a Christian. Yeah, you know, um, I just, I think, I think, you know, I I just want to close by saying, I, I think circling back, I think that some pastors probably lament that they don't have what they could have you know they might have taken a call and maybe the elders aren't what they hope they might be and that sort of thing so i can imagine it can be discouraging um i would just you know hope that 
that in their in their ministry and that sort of thing they would just they would just remember that what we're called to do is stand you know we're not necessarily called to always we're not necessarily called to 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 change the world and that sort of thing and sometimes it's helpful to know that the goal is is that you know contend and stand and and don't and don't fall down and so you know i i i i think it's it's not healthy to to look at what a person from another another denomination is doing that and and to start you know kind of you know focusing on the bitter aspects of the call because there's a lot of there's a lot of glory and a lot of uh praise to be had for the call to that you know Paul in 1 Corinthians I think it's 4:13 says that you know we're the scum of the earth for the sake of the ministry mm-hmm. and that's kind of the you know once once you know what your what, what where your status is in terms of what the world sees then that's helpful to know in terms of how the world's going to see you um and then you realize what the ministry's like you know paul never says paul never stops and says you know i had to memorize all these sermons you don't realize i had three or four phds and i'm still having to make tents you know and all this other stuff he doesn't he doesn't he 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 sees all the all of these things as as privileges for the sake of the church and i think once you when when you when you change your perspective sometimes about why you're doing that cuz candidly you know, I don't know if it's a it's it's an age kind of thing, but sometimes I get a little too pity party-ish. You know, I'm I'm just a a ruling elder, but sometimes I feel like oh, I'm I'm getting kind of weary of these kinds of things. So I understand some of the pressures. I've got my own things with with other um, stresses and all that other stuff that have to do with balancing all those other things. But I've never found it useful to kind of just sit around and talk about how hard things are, how bad it is to be who I am, because I always feel like, you know, if anything, um, Christ has called me to an honorable service and to think that I'm privileged to be able to do this with all of the the tribulations that go along with that, you know, far outweighs the, the difficulties associated with that office. If anything, I feel myself unworthy to do that rather than than um, despising the call and wondering how I'm going to deal with with the pressures of it. The pressures that I place on myself have to do more with my sense that, you know, um, I'm not I'm not as faithful as I could be, or that I'm not, or that I'm I'm complaining about things internally when I should be, you know, putting certain thoughts to death and that sort of thing. So just press on, and and some of these some of these kinds of you know, common things to where we're just kind of, you know, just kind of venting all of these things aren't necessarily always health, healthy, but that's not to say that we don't need encouragement either. So, you know, kind of balance the two together to where you're not trying to just give vent to the flesh about how hard it is, but you're also, you know, looking for resources so that you're not all on your own and you're you're feeling like there's others to encourage you along the way and say, hey, come on, press, bro- press on, brother. The goal's worth it, you know. That the people that we're ministering to are worth it. This is this is the flock of God, and and it's worth all of the effort that goes into it. Oh, amen. That that is a good word. Uh, you know, I th- I think as 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 we are wrapping up here, but just that I think it's going to get tougher. I don't think it's going to get easier. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people go into the ministry with some pie in the sky. They either want to be, you know, this great preacher or. Whatever it is, I mean, we all want to see miracles, you know, and and it, it the call of ministry is the call to 
to die for Christ and to carry the burdens of the congregation and having a right view of the gospel, a right view of the resurrection. I love that focus uh, that you, you guys brought up. Um, a view, a right view of calling in this, you know, uh, I mean, this is, I don't know, my fifth career, I guess. <laughs> so I, I know what it is to be a teacher. I know what it is to be an engineer. I know what it is to be in corporate America and run businesses. And uh, in some sense, this is the hardest thing I've ever done, but it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And I think if you don't have the right focus and view of the gospel, it it is going to be drudgery and viewed as any other any other thing you're doing. And so in the words of Brad, be a Presbyterian. <laughs> And, uh, and man, be, this was fun. Don't, you, you, don't be an Erdman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, this was fun, you guys. I thank you for this conversation. Actually, it was Rich's idea a few months ago. He, he said he wanted to have a conversation yeah, with I Brad. Yeah, I wanted to be on with Brad because he's got such a cool, like, deep voice. And then my voice, so we kind of balance out to be a normal ruling elder together. <laughs> right. Well, there you go. And I'm just the platform for you guys to do your thing. There, That's it. And uh, so, of course, wait, Brad didn't say it. I think it goes without saying, but he is... Uh, the co-host of PresbyCast, uh, the old, what's your Twitter handle? The oldest Presbyterian. Well, I changed it. You say the oldest and biggest reformed podcast. There was an asterisk, and the aster <laughs> asterisk referred to to do live chicken sandwich reviews on air. So we're not the <laughs> oldest or the biggest, but we are the oldest and the biggest that focuses on food sometimes. Fast fast food. No you chicken sandwiches. Oh, chicken sandwich. Okay. Like especially, I think, the ones that are in gas stations, right, Brad? Uh, it's been done. Yes. <laughs> Have you done Bucky's yet? Uh, yeah, I did. Uh, I did the. Uh, I did the. Um, well, the brisket taco, I think. Okay. On some <laughs> right, trip. There you go. <laughs> the brisket taco. Very good. Uh, all right. All right, gentlemen. This was great. Uh, any, any, I'll give you one more chance. Any final words? Well, that's uh, it. Uh, th something I've been saying a lot the last year uh, is that Presbyterian churches ought to be officer-led, not staff-led. Whether you're a small that's church good. or a big church, uh, if, if you're so big you've got to have 100 professionals to make things work, you're too big. Um, staff-led usually means pastor-led in most churches, uh, but it needs to be the officer's. Uh, the plurality of elders working with the deacons uh, for the good of, 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 of church members, of people. That's what it's about. Good word. Good word. And uh, hey, by the way, did you guys see Fred Greco is, is teaching a polity class at, at Birmingham Theological Seminary? Have you seen that? Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yes. So they're doing they're going doing good stuff over there at BTS. I I, I give them a plug. They they actually help sponsor this this podcast. And so Birmingham Theological Seminary. If you're a ruling elder, there's great certificate programs at the master's level you can take. And uh, if you're a pastor, there's I'm in a D-Men program that I'm absolutely uh, blessed by. So thanks for listening to PNR Churchmen. Until another episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.